woke indoctrination in our schools, that is a road to ruin for this country. And we're not gonna let it happen in Florida. No taxpayer dollars should be used to teach our kids to hate our country. That was Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, and I am Amna Khalid. Banished is on hiatus, as many of you know, but I'm partnering with my colleague Jeff Snyder to bring you an occasional series on how anti-critical race theory legislation is impacting higher education. Seven states, including Idaho, Oklahoma, and Tennessee, in addition to Florida, have already passed laws banning certain ideas in colleges and universities, while many other states are actively considering similar bills as we speak. For today's episode, we will focus on Florida's Stop Woke Act, which is currently being challenged in court. But first, here's Jeff to give you a sense of what the Stop Woke Act is all about. The Florida legislature passed the Stop Woke Act, technically House Bill 7, on a strict party line vote in April of this year. The law is part of a broader push by red states to crack down on the alleged teaching of critical race theory. The act prohibits instruction that espouses, promotes, advances, inculcates, or compels an individual to believe eight specific concepts relating to race, color, sex, or national origin. If a professor is seen to endorse one of these concepts, let's say concept number three, an individual's moral character or status is either privileged or oppressed is necessarily determined by his or her race, color, sex, or national origin, the professor could lose their job and the university could face the loss of millions of dollars in annual funding. In September, University of South Florida history professor Adriana Navoa and the First Amendment Forum, a student organization at USF, filed a lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of HB7 with the help of FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. To understand why HB7 is so flawed, we spoke with Professor Navoa, Sam Richak, a senior at USF and president of the First Amendment Forum, and FIRE attorney Adam Steinbaugh. We started by asking Adam Steinbaugh what distinguishes Florida's Stop Woke Act from past attempts to curtail academic freedom. During the Cold War, there were a number of Supreme Court cases that addressed circumstances in which censorious legislatures or administrators or state executives would try to limit who could speak in class or who could speak on campus or what organizations could be formed because their goal was to say that if this person has inappropriate or dangerous ideas, we need to keep them away from campus. Florida looked at that. And instead of recognizing that the First Amendment prohibits them from imposing what the Supreme Court called the Paul of Orthodoxy on campus, they said, instead of trying to ban speakers, let's just ban the ideas themselves. And that's dangerous. I think it is unique in American history. It is something that censors have never tried before, and it's something that deserves to be thought. And that's true whether it is a red state imposing a list of forbidden ideas or blue state imposing a list of forbidden ideas. No state can do this. Okay, Adam, let's dig into the stipulations of the act. So one of the forbidden concepts is that an individual by virtue of her race, color, sex, or national origin is inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously. According to this law, then, the teaching of something like implicit bias would not be possible in a classroom. Another concept professors must not advance 
or promote is that an individual by virtue of his or her race, sex, color, or national origin bears responsibility for or should be discriminated against or receive adverse treatment because of actions committed in the past by other members of the same group. This would seem to make debating topics like affirmative action and reparations next to impossible. And yet, at the same time, HP 7 includes a caveat that the law should not be construed to prohibit discussion of the eight concepts listed, provided instruction is given in an objective manner without endorsement of the concepts. So some people would say, well then, the law is not totally banning these topics. What's the problem? How do you respond to that? That's not really how classrooms always work because faculty members need to be able to engage in devil advocacy and be able to take a position. And maybe it's not the position that they themselves believe. Sometimes the best way to engage with an idea is to have someone say, here's what I believe, or isn't this the right uh, approach? Uh, and we question them on it. And maybe they come away thinking that professor really does endorse this concept. Maybe the professor really doesn't endorse it at all, but just wants to be able to raise it to provoke conversation. So this carve-out fails to account for when professors strategically play devil's advocate. Now, that's something many of us do to push our students to consider alternative points of view or minority positions. But there's more to this bill. I recently learned that the state of Florida is arguing that the law applies to guest speakers as well. How can a professor possibly anticipate every view or position that a speaker might advance? There's nothing about this law uh, that would prevent the state of Florida from including the ninth concept or 900 more concepts. And just last week, the state was arguing that if next month the state legislature flips to the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party steps in and says, here's the list of views that we think amount to harassment, that would be completely permissible, even if it's just the opposite of what the law <laughs> says now. So it's really about whoever is in power saying this is what the truth is. So if the state is coming in and saying the purpose of our law is to prevent indoctrination and we're doing it through indoctrination. <laughs> now, <laughs> it's not, not a very sound law. So, Adam, FIRE is challenging this law in court on the grounds that it violates the faculty's First Amendment rights and that it's chilling speech in classrooms. What is the state's defense? We just had a hearing on our motion for a preliminary injunction, and the state has come back and has made the argument that when faculty members speak in the classroom, because they are paid by the state of Florida, their speech is what's called government speech, which is a First Amendment doctrine. We think that's dangerous. We are arguing against that when the state hires faculty members to speak in a university. It's not hiring them to speak from a government script or to convey a particular message. It's hiring them because they can speak from authority. And that needs to be free of state constraint. Say a little more about this government speech doctrine. Why shouldn't it apply to professors employed by public universities? When the government speaks its own message, the First Amendment places no limits on the government. So if the government wants to say, we think that blue is the best color, there's no First Amendment limit on them telling their employees, okay, don't put press releases out saying, actually, no, red is the best color. Even though that's viewpoint discrimination, it's still government speech and the government gets to decide what the government is going to say. Under a case called uh, Garcetti v. Ceballos, 
the Supreme Court said that when government employees speak pursuant to their job duties, what they are doing is speaking on behalf of the government. And they don't have a First Amendment right to say, actually, no, when I spoke as an employee, you couldn't punish me for saying the opposite of what you wanted me to say. And that makes sense for people like uh, a spokesman for the government. Mm -hmm. Spokesman. Uh, for the FBI goes up and says, actually, the DEA is the best investigative agency around and the FBI is just full of crooks. And the First Amendment is not going to protect that spokesman when he finds himself sitting on a sidewalk in Washington. On the other hand, faculty members, uh, they're not hired to convey a government message. Uh, even though they are employees and they're hired to convey a message, it's not the government message. When faculty members speak on matters of public interest, uh, which could include academic affairs or political affairs, that is speech that is protected against government retaliation. Even though they are paid by the government, that's a little bit counterintuitive for a lot of people because most people, when they're employed by someone, if they say something the boss doesn't like, they are at-will employees and they don't have First Amendment rights. What makes higher ed so special in this respect? Universities occupy a unique role in our uh, constitutional constellation, and faculty members are critical to that role. Academic freedom depends on their ability to speak without government constraint. First Amendment rights protect everyone from the endowed, uh, tenured professor down to the one semester graduate student lecturer. The Stop Woke Act applies not only to faculty members who are tenured or full professors. Mm -hmm. But it even applies to graduate student instructors who are getting nothing in exchange for providing an instruction, except for maybe credit or maybe just you know, a line on their CV. The other point I would make is that faculty members need that freedom, that breathing space, because academia depends on the ability to put forth ideas that people are going to find objectionable. DeSantis and other proponents of the Stop Walk Act want to stifle that breathing space because, in their view, campuses have become hotbeds of leftist indoctrination. We asked Adriana Novoa, professor of Latin American history at the University of South Florida, and one of the co-plaintiffs in this case, what she would say to the charge that professors are indoctrinating their students. It's so insulting, honestly, because this law was passed after the pandemic. The only thing we did for two years was to attend to a humanitarian crisis. The last thing in the mind of any teacher in this country, I imagine, was to indoctrinate people. This idea that all students are brain dead and they come to a vacuum in which we instill content is absolutely absurd. Okay, so let me ask you this. How would you respond to assertions like, well, the teaching of history today is determined by the political leanings and opinions of professors. In history, as in any other field, you have people from very diverse political backgrounds and cultures and political interests. So, no, all the classes are not the same. The idea that we are teaching one voice and that voice is Marxist it's preposterous. You go to a class and say in math and says two plus two seven, a person will say, okay, that's your opinion, but it's not right. That idea that you can teach history as, an, as only opinions, it's absurd. My colleagues and I, what we teach in history is the technical aspects of history. So what I teach them to do is how you build an argument how you prove it, how we integrate primary and secondary sources. The basic foundation 
It's argumentation. Argumentation means competitive ideas. <laughs> so it's impossible to teach argumentation with one point of view. The Act says that professors can't teach anything that advances the idea that an individual's moral character or status as either privileged or oppressed is necessarily determined by her race, color, sex, or national origin. Adriana, I know from our earlier conversation that for you this means that in your course on the history of sport, which I believe is one of the most popular courses at the University of South Florida, you won't be able to include readings on Jackie Robinson on segregation in professional baseball. That's mainly because these materials advance arguments about white privilege. And because the Act also bans advancing arguments about collective guilt, you won't be able to assign materials about, say, Argentina's extermination of indigenous people. So if I were to ask you to tell me in one sentence, what's the problem with the Stop Work Act from the perspective of a historian, what would you say? The problem is that you need to deny reality to teach according to this law. And that is my issue. It's not political. It's not against any governor or anything. Okay, hang on. Let me ask you then, what made you decide to take on this case? I come from a background in which certain ideas can cost you a lot. I promised myself in 83, when democracy was restored in Argentina, that I will never live under the fear of self-censorship. And then here I was in the summer thinking about, oh, I cannot say this, or maybe this will be too much. I was starting to compromise in terms of what I will teach to adjust to the requirements of the government. And that was very uncomfortable. And that's what brought me to this point. And it pains me, physically pains me to see colleagues thinking about censorship. People are scared and uh, concerned. I have people who have changed syllabi. Negotiating these things never ends well <laughs> because whatever you lose doesn't come back. I wanted strongly to challenge that because it's in fact was affecting my teaching. I'm so glad you said that, Adriana, because so often I hear people say, oh, okay, we'll make this one concession. And before you know it, it's like death by a thousand paper cuts. It's slowly, gradually chipping away at what is absolutely essential and necessary for critical thinking, which is what we're in the business of teaching. It sometimes takes someone from the outside to point out that in the free world, we're seeing repressive measures that are impinging on the freedom to think. And these actually are even more repressive than in other places that have been held up as counterparts to the free world. I agree completely. What is most disturbing for me is I hear a lot of people in academia saying this is unacceptable. But it's really not unacceptable because they accept it. I'm very careful when I use that word because if I said something is unacceptable, I will not accept it because mm. it means that it's at the core of something that implies a tremendous transformation in what I do. This is not about me. <laughs> it's about something that I consider sacred, which is freedom of expression in general, and in particular freedom in the classrooms. The narcissism in academia needs to stop. It's <laughs> not about ourselves. For many of us in the teaching profession, it's apparent that what's at stake is the education of the next generation. 
legislation that dictates what can and cannot be taught will ultimately shortchange our students. To get a student perspective, we spoke to Sam Recheck, a senior at the University of South Florida and founder of the student group First Amendment Forum, which is one of the co-plaintiffs in the court case challenging the Stop Work Act. We started by asking Sam why he thinks freedom of expression is valuable. I'm persuaded by the argument put forth by John Stuart Mill. When you engage with someone who disagrees with you, there are three things that could happen. You could be right, they could be right, or you could both be a little right. And in each of those cases, it looks like your view is actually strengthened. If you're right and they're wrong, then your view becomes a living belief instead of a dead dogma. If you're, or if they're right and you're wrong, then you can learn from them. And if you're both a little wrong and both a little right, then both of your views are strengthened because they're informed by each other. So Sam, it's clear that you're concerned about the impact of the Stop Woke Act on the quality of education at the University of South Florida. You're a senior now. Can you give us an example of an educational experience you've had during your time as a student that you worry will no longer be available to students with this new law in place? So a professor of mine taught an introduction to philosophy of law class fall semester of my junior year. So that was about a year ago. And that was one of the most impactful classes I've had as we entered into discussions of critical race theory. I can see very clearly that the views espoused by those scholars in those readings would not have been permissible or could be construed as impermissible by the provisions of the Stop Woke Act. And given that someone like me who is pre-law really valued those conversations and really valued that part of that course's curriculum, I wouldn't want that class to be any other way. I feel like my education would have been severely hampered and those of other students coming after me would be severely hampered if they couldn't have that conversation. Okay, so I'm going to change gears a bit and ask you about the First Amendment Forum, which is the student group that you started. From what I've read about the forum, it's all about wrestling with controversial topics in a space where students have the freedom to speak their minds. Tell us a little bit about the forum. Our, our motto is free speech done right. So while we acknowledge that freedom of speech by law protects a lot of expression that is um, hateful and not in good faith. What we're really interested in is the academic value of the First Amendment and freedom of speech and the civil discourse that is protected by that. Can you give us examples of some of the topics you've discussed? We've talked about abortion, gun control, immigration, the role of race and comedy, affirmative action. We've really run the gamut of the kind of controversial political and social issues in the United States. Let's return to the Stop Woke Act. This legislation does not police student speech, and it says nothing about regulating the workings of student organizations like the First Amendment Forum. So why should students care? Why should student organizations care? First, students are exposed to classrooms where discussions are modified or changed or curriculums are changed based on the Stop Woke Act. Two, students are also reading the news and they understand the Stop Woke Act and its provisions and what its effect has been on campus. So when students experience that Paul of Orthodoxy in their classroom, they can also take that Paul of Orthodoxy into their discussion, that First Amendment forum. The Paul of Orthodoxy crosses the lines of the classroom door. And with that, Sam highlighted how deeply damaging the Stop Woke Act is. Even though it's purportedly only policing faculty speech in the classroom, it has a spillover effect on conversations on campus more broadly. What's the status of the case now? Here's Jess. In mid-October, federal judge Mark Walker, chief justice of the Northern District of Florida, 
presided over a hearing about legal challenges to the Stop Woke Act. Fire and other opponents of the act are hoping to see a preliminary injunction. Judge Walker appeared to be skeptical of the state's assertion that interpreting professors' speech as government speech wouldn't pose a threat to academic freedom. We believe in academic freedom, the judge said, so long as you say what we want you to say. That sounds like something George Orwell wrote, the judge concluded. According to Steinbach, they anticipate a ruling from Walker by Thanksgiving. Whatever the exact timeline, Steinbach expects the case will eventually make its way to the 11th Circuit and possibly beyond. Stay tuned. If you're affected by anti-CRT laws targeting higher education, please reach out to us. Amna and I are fellows at the University of California National Center for Free Speech and Civic Engagement this academic year. Our project focuses on the emerging threats to academic freedom posed by laws like the Stop Woke Act. We're eager to talk to faculty and administrators who work at public college and universities in states that have passed this kind of legislation. And we're more than happy to maintain the strictest confidentiality for people who don't want to go on the record. You've been listening to Banished, and I, as always, am Amna Khalid. Until next time.